Okay. Hey, let's open our Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 12. The book of Kings, First uh, and Second Kings, is uh, an interesting book to say the least. It reminds me a lot of the book of Judges, and because the book of Judges, if you remember, a long time ago, a couple years ago, we were going through it, and but it, but it goes like a roller coaster. Uh, you know, the the children of Israel are doing really well, and then they fall into idolatry, and God delivers them into the hand of their enemies, and then God raises up a savior or a judge or someone to deliver them. And then God delivers them, and they're doing fine for a while, and then they dip back into idolatry. God brings them into the hands of their enemies, and then they cry out to God. God raises up a deliverer, and then they're on this plateau, and it just keeps going like that. And you'll find that First and Second Kings, as we have gone through it, is, is very similar to that. And it, such is the case of mankind, because we have an old nature, this nature that's at enmity with God, and it's not a surprise that you see this kind of thing. In fact, history is like that. It, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a constant uh, roller coaster ride of going into the valleys and coming up to the heights, and then going down to the valleys and going up to the heights, and so it goes, and so it goes. And... Uh, and as we look tonight, it's no different. And we'll see that continuing to happen until God uh, finally brings them to the lowest point. He allows this, you know, this roller coaster to happen for a while until he just says, okay, enough's enough. I, I need to teach you a lesson. And he allows them to go into captivity. And, and, and they just flatline for a while. Uh, but all that time in the, in the valley, if you will, out in the desert, God has not finished and, and that's true for us, too. If you find yourself being disciplined by God in any way, he's, he's not doing it to, uh, to destroy you. If there's a silent period in your life where you feel like you're out in the desert, that's when he speaks peaceably to you. He's, he's not bringing you into that place to harm you. Rather, it's to get you to listen and to finally look up. And if we will do that, then it'll be one of the most fruitful times of our lives, even though from the outside it'll look like a valley, it'll look like a desert, and even we'll feel that way at times. But God is always wanting to lift us up. He's never wanting to, to, to pound you. He doesn't do that. He, he changes our hearts. And, and, and you see that through uh, First and Second Kings as well. God moving on the hearts of certain leaders, certain reformers. And tonight we're going to see one of the first reformers, Joash. Uh, you know, after the, you know, the kingdom of Israel had gone into gross idolatry, you know, God raises up a man. And, and that man, he started off well, as we're going to see tonight, but he didn't end well. And then, you know, Israel's back in the same spot they, they were in before. But God always has his men at different times in history that he, uh, the heart of a man is willing to receive God. And so God fills that void with himself. And then that man uh, raises the country, raises the bar, if you will. And, and then when Israel is walking in obedience, they're being blessed by their God. And, and that's what we desire too, right, in our country. We want to we be blessed by God. You know, a lot of people say, God bless America. You know, and I've heard somebody say, well, America, why don't you bless God? And that is a good thing for us to do. Let's bless God by our actions, by the things that come out of our mouth, the things, the actions that we do. May that be something that is uh, ever-present on our hearts to to be those ambassadors, to be those uh, carrying the torch of righteousness out into a very dark world, not in uh, you know, hypocrisy and certainly not in pride. We, we do it out of love and we do it in humility. And when we do that in that way, people notice. And God is glorified, not man, not us. We're not to receive the glory. Jesus is to receive the glory. Amen. And so uh, as we've been going through this, um, we, we, we were looking at the house of Ahab and Jezebel and how God had pronounced judgment against the house of Ahab. <clears throat> and certainly uh, through the, the lives of, uh, through the life of Yehu, one of his generals, uh, when he was a much younger man under, under Ahab, 
uh, we find that um, Yehu continues to grow, and after Ahab dies from the, and, and when he dies in battle, his son uh, fills in that gap, and, and, and uh, Yehu is still a commander of the army. And, and God gives to Yehu through the prophet Elisha. If you remember a few chapters ago, it was uh, actually, I believe it was in uh, um, chapter 9, we saw Elisha the prophet sending one of the other prophets to go and anoint Yehu as the king of, of Israel. Remember, the king of Israel now is uh, 10 tribes up in the north, and then you had the two tribes, the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, known as Judah, and this is known as Israel. So you just have to get that straight. When, when we speak of Israel, it's speaking of the northern 10 tribes now. When it's speaking of Judah, it's speaking of the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. So Yehu now is uh, given this instruction by God to wipe out the line of Ahab, and certainly he does that. Yehu kills not only the, the, um, the, the, the men of Ahab, he kills Jehoram, uh, who was the next king in Israel, and, he, and also he kills uh, Ahaziah, the king of Judah, because remember Ahaziah was, um, um, well he kills him, and then Yehu kills Ahab's 70 sons and also Ahaziah's 42 brothers, so he's really rooting out this Baal worship on both sides of the fence, if you will, and then we find that Athaliah, remember, she was the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. She kills all the heirs of the throne of Judah and places herself on the throne when she had no right to be on the throne because Joash was supposed to be the next in line after Yehu killed Ahaziah, the, the king of, of Judah. And so the next one in line was supposed to be uh, the next oldest heir under Ahaziah, but Athaliah, who was the uh, daughter of Ahab and Jezebel and married to previously Jehoram before he passed away, she puts herself on the throne, kills all of the heirs, and thank God for two people, uh, Jehosheba and um, uh, the daughter of King Joram and... Um, and Jehoiada, the priest, the high priest at that time, they hide away the youngest. They hide away this little boy named Je, uh, Jehoash, or Joash is what he's named. And he's the only one left. And these two people, Jehosheba, again, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, she hides him. And, um, and Jehoiada, the priest, also protects the, the, the heir apparent uh, because Athaliah was seeking to kill him even. And just an amazing thing. And, and no other time in Israel's history has a woman been on the throne. And uh, uh, certainly uh, we're not including the time of the judges where Deborah was certainly a judge, although she was not a king or a... Uh, she wasn't queen either, but she was uh, just a, um, a judge of Israel at the time. But no other time has there been a woman on the throne. And here Athaliah, the daughter of Jezebel, and it's kind of surprising because Jezebel, uh, through the character which we see in the pages in Scripture, is a very power-hungry, evil woman. And, and she takes it upon herself to get on the throne. And, and the reason why this was so preposterous was because the covenant that God had made with David and his seed had nothing to do with a woman. And there's nothing wrong with women, of course. God, loved, God made man and woman. They have a, a right order, and a, he has a plan for them. And uh, can I just get an amen for male and female? God made two, male and female, right? But what did God say to, to David? And this is why this is such a, a shame and a, a preposterous, really. Remember, I'm, I'm going to drill this into you because this is a really significant scripture. If you're going to memorize a scripture reference, this is a good one to do it. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 7, 12 through 16. And let me just read it to you because this is what Nathan the prophet told David concerning his reign and that his kingdom would last forever, Okay. And it says in verse 12, God speaking to David, he says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, in other words, when you die, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body and, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house uh, for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now in the immediate, we can see that that was Solomon, right? 
But then he goes on and he says, and I'll be his father and he'll be my son. And if he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the son of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And here is verse 16. It's an amazing thing. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So God repeats himself. So now he's speaking way beyond the immediate of Solomon being on the throne after David passed away. Now he's speaking of the seed, which is a, a word that literally, it, it means Christ. It means the Messiah. And that's what they all knew that to be, the seed of, of the woman. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3. And, and so God is speaking uh, that it's David and his seed. Now, Athaliah was not of David's seed. And so she places herself on the throne, and she has no right to be there. No right to be there. And so let's read, and then finally, uh, like I said uh, prior, Yehu finally kills Jeze- or Jezebel and, and also uh, Athaliah. She is uh, killed after the coup that... Um, uh, Jehoiada the priest had planned and followed through with. But let's read now uh, chapter 12. And because it's so short, let's just read it straight through and then we'll take communion tonight as well. It says, In the seventh year of Yehu, Jehoash became king and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebiah of Beersheba. And Jehoash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days in which Jehoiada the priest instructed him But the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. And Jehoash said to the priests, All the money of the dedicated gifts that are brought into the house of the Lord, each man's census money and each man's assessment money, and all the money that a man purposes in his heart to bring into the house of the Lord, let the priests take it themselves, each from his constituency, and let them repair the damages of the temple wherever any dilapidation, uh, dilapidation is found. Now it was so that by the 23rd year of King Jehoash that the priests had not repaired the damages of the temple. So King Joash called Jehoiada the priest and the other priests and said to them, Why have you not repaired the damages of the temple? Now therefore do not take more money from your constituency, but deliver it for repairing the damages of the temple. And the priests agreed They would neither receive more money from the people nor repair the damages of the temple. Then Jehoiada the priest took a chest. He bored a hole in it. He got out his DeWalt drill and put a a half-inch drill and drilled it right in there and set it beside the altar on the right side as one comes into the house of the Lord. And the priests who kept the door put there all the money brought into the house of the Lord And so it was when they saw that there was much money in the chest that the king's scribe and the high priest came and they put it in bags, counted the money that was found in the house of the Lord, and then they gave the money which had been apportioned into the hands of those who did the work, who had the oversight of the house of the Lord. And they paid it out to the carpenters and builders who worked. He says, put it in in bags, the money, and then they gave the money which had been apportioned into the hands of those who did the work, who had the oversight of the house of the Lord, and they paid it out to the carpenters and builders who worked on the house of the Lord, and to the masons and the stone cutters. Is the recording on too, as well? Okay, great. We can edit that out later, right, Tom? (laughs) And to the masons and the stone cutters, and for buying timber and hewn stone to repair the damage of the house of the Lord, and for all that was paid out to repair the temple. However... There were not made, um, made for the house of the Lord basins of silver and trimmers and sprinkling bowls, trumpets, and any articles of gold or articles of silver from the money brought into the house of the Lord. But they gave it to the workmen, and they repaired the house of the Lord with it. Moreover, they did not require an account from the men who made, uh, whose hand they delivered the money to pay the workmen, for they dealt faithfully. And the money from the trespass offerings and the money from the sin offerings was not brought into the house of the Lord. It belonged to the priests. And so why don't we uh, just stop right there and, um, and then we'll, just con- we'll, we'll pick up um, there as we go along. But, you know, if we go back to um, the very first verse, 
You know, as we read through this, uh, something becomes um, actually. Let's continue reading. <laughs> Verse seventeen: Hazael, king of Syria, went up and fought against Gath and took it. And then Hazael set his face to go up to Jerusalem. And Jehoash, king of Judah, took all the sacred things that his father Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Ahaziah, kings of Judah, had dedicated and his own sacred things and all the gold found in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and in the king's house and sent them to Hazael, king of Assyria. And then he went away from Jerusalem. Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And indeed they are, and we're going to look at that tonight. And his servants arose and formed a conspiracy and killed Joash in the house of the Milo, which goes down to Silla, for Josachar, the son of Shimeath, and Jehozabad, the son of Shomer, his servant, struck him, and so he died, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David. And then Amaziah, his son, reigned in his place. So it's a really interesting passage because you see a man who started really well and was doing the right thing, you know, after all of the Baal worship, and then finally Joash is born, and he has this wonderful man, Jehoiada, to be like his governor, sort of like an uncle to him. And Jehoiada, the high priest, was a much older man, and Joash was only seven years old. And so he's got this great man of God who knows this young man's role. And instead of taking the glory for himself or trying to usurp that, because somebody indeed had already done that, Athaliah, he decides, I'm going to do everything I can to put him back on the throne. And I want to, I want to be with him and help him. And that's what discipleship is really all about, right? And if there was one title I could put on this message, it would be, Who Are You Really? Who are you really? <laughs> it's kind of an interesting thing because there's an old saying that goes, who you are in private is who you really are. And I know that that is true because we can put on airs and, and airs is a French term meaning appearance. We can uh, be around strangers and, and even family and, and put on airs, put on an appearance of something that we really are not. But isn't it true that we always have to look at ourselves in the mirror at some point? We have to have those times when we're by ourselves and we find out who we really are. You know, who are you when you're able to make your own decisions without any accountability? When there are no governors in your life, no master, no teacher, no boss anywhere in sight, because this is who we really are. I've known this true of myself, and, and it's, a, it's a sad commentary on my own heart. There have been times where I've had no oversight, and I find myself choosing to do things that I normally wouldn't do. And it proves my character. It proves who I am, and it's a hard thing to, to see it in yourself, and you realize just the corruption that's within us. Even as Christians, there, there's still things in us that need to be refined, that God is refining. And certainly, the person who doesn't know Christ, they're filled with everything corruptible, and they have no idea, no clue at all what they're doing. But you and I, as Christians, you know, this even happens. And most of us don't really know who we really are until we're put in those positions like that. And it may break your heart to find out that you're not as sanctified as you thought you were. But the alternate thing is you may also find that you're more sanctified than you thought you were, but the trial will prove your character. Isn't it true that trials prove us? Trials prove the depth of our character. And we're going to see that, and we actually read it, but we're going to be looking at it a little closer, just that idea of the depth of character of Joash. It seemed like it was only skin deep, and we'll look at that. And, and people can be sincere about anything, but they can be sincerely wrong and even sincerely deceived. Have you met somebody who's sincerely deceived? I mean, they really believe the deception. And you're looking at them and you're like, how can you? You're dumbfounded because you're like, you know, you're looking at the sky and you're telling them it's blue. And indeed it is because there's no clouds in the sky. And they're saying, no, it's, it's, it's orange. And you're like, What? And things like that happen, but sincere is an interesting word. 
In Noah Webster's 1828 Dictionary, and if you don't have Noah's 1828 American Dictionary, I would encourage you to get it. They actually sell it on the Apple uh, store. You can get it electronically. And usually it comes in a big, thick thing like this. It's got a green cover. If you can find one, get it because it's wonderful. It includes scriptures and the definitions. Just an amazing thing. But the word sincere literally comes from, and I got this from the dictionary, from Webster's 1828 American Dictionary. Sincere comes from Latin with, of sinceras, which is said to be composed of uh, of sign, or it means without, literally, is what sinaris uh, means, without, and Sarah means wax. And so it literally means without wax. Because people in the old times, in the Middle East, when they would go to the Go to the store, go along the, you know, where they buy vases and stuff like that, you know, out, outside markets. They would grab those vases and they would hold them up to the sun and they would see if they're sincera without wax because those pots could be broken. And when those pots are broken, they, they were very crafty. They'd take wax and they'd melt it in between the thing and they'd fit it together and the wax would dry and then they'd paint it and then it would look like a new vase. And little, little did you know that the thing had been broken two or three times prior, but you wouldn't know it until you looked at it, up, you held it up to the sun and you could see right through it and you could see the lines and the cracks where it was with wax. So therefore, it wasn't sincere. It wasn't sincere. It was with wax instead of without wax. But trials have a way of showing us how sincere, the, the real makeup of who we really are. Our character, as it's held up to the light of the sun, and the sun or the sun, S-U-N or S-O-N, it makes no difference. When God holds us up, what does he see? Does he see us with wax or without wax? Are we sincere or are we not sincere? But James tells us, Jesus' half-brother, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. That literally means putting to the proof. And that's the same thing of holding up a vase to the light. You're seeing if it's sincere or not. Who really am I? And who is Joash? Was he this great man or was he this scoundrel all along, just masquerading because he had a governor in his life, a man whom he looked up to, that he respected. But there seems to be, and it goes on, it says, knowing that the testing or the proving of your faith, what does it do? It produces patience. It produces a steadfast endurance. That's what it does. But there seems to be no way else of finding out our character until the circumstances or an opportunity presents itself, and then our character is put on display. And so are we sincere? Are we sincere? Are we without wax? Am I without wax? And I don't know for sure. I can talk a big game all I want, but life has a way, and God has a way of exposing me. And what does he do? Does he expose me so that he can smash me and, and everything and hurt me? No, God exposes you if you're a Christian. He chastens those whom he loves. So when he causes you to get busted or he, he convicts your heart about something, it's because he wants to get it out of you. You know, why did he lead the children of Israel in the desert for 40 years? It was to get Egypt out of them. Egypt was a, an idol-worshiping place. He had to bring his people out into the desert to remove Egypt from them. And you remember one of the first things they did when they came out, what'd they do? They built, a, uh, they built a calf, a golden calf. Remember that? God had to get Egypt out of them because that's what they did in Egypt. They worshiped cows. So God wants to do that. He wants to get it out of us, to refine us, to conform us to his image. Isn't it true? First Thessalonians, I believe it's... Uh, 4 verse 3, or yeah, I think it's 4 verse 3 or 4 verse 13. It says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. And sanctification is a process that takes time. And God in that process is showing you to the light. And you're, you're seeing it yourself. He's revealing it to you. And then we have a choice to make. Am I going to get rid of this thing? Am I going to put this? Am I going to repent of this thing? Am I going to do everything I can to get this thing out of my life? And if I do, then God will polish me up again, and then later on down the road, he'll lift it up again, and maybe there'll be a few less uh, lines and cracks, and he goes, okay, but what about this? Let's, let's work on this now. Oh, Lord, I really love that thing. Well, we'll come back. We'll come back to it. 
And pretty soon you hate that thing. And he's like, okay, you ready to deal with it now? We're like, yes, I'm ready to be done with this thing. Okay, let's go after it. Let's get it done. And I love that about the Lord. And he's always doing that to all of us. No matter how old in the Lord we are, he's always working. He's always doing that work in us. And Job's faith was even tested. Although he struggled immensely, God knew Job's strength, even though Job didn't know. And God saw him through the trial, did he not? And at the end, he reaped double for his trials. Even Abraham was tested. In Hebrews eleven seventeen, it says that Abraham, when he was tested, when he was put to the proof, he offered up Isaac. God had told him that through Isaac would be the promises, through Isaac would be the seed, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and down through, you know, um, you know, Jake, uh, you know Jacob, and then uh, down through Judah, and then Judah down to Christ. Do you see how that works? When he was tested, he offered up his only son, the only one that the promise was in, And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, And Isaac, your seed, there it is again, shall be called. Out of Isaac would come the Messiah, because out of Isaac would come Jacob, out of Jacob would come the patriarchs, Judah, and then Judah all the way down. And that's what the whole genealogy in Matthew and Luke is all about, showing us that through the line of Judah, Christ, whether on Mary's side or Joseph's side, it doesn't matter, even though Joseph had nothing to do with it, Do you get it? And so when he was tested, and then uh, concluding then, Abraham, that God was able to raise him up, even though he would try to kill him, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Abraham knew there was something more to this whole act of him putting Isaac, his only begotten son, to death on the very mount, on the very mount that Christ was placed where he gave his life on the same mountain range, Mount Moriah, where the Temple Mount is today, was the very place that Abraham offered up Isaac. And then some couple thousand years later, another father would offer his only begotten son on that same place. God was showing him in a type, in in an understanding. But God knew intimately the faith of Job. And it wasn't, it's not a sin to be tempted. God doesn't tempt. Satan tempts us. God doesn't tempt us. But Jehoash, or Joash, he started out well, but he didn't finish well. Don't you want to finish well? God has done a great work in your life already. He wants to start you out, and he wants to see you through it. You know, he who began a good work in you will, will be faithful to complete it in the, until the day of Christ Jesus. He wants to complete that good work that he's begun in each of us. And you may not think that God has done a good work in you, but, and you may be going through a valley, but I, I can tell you that if you're a, a, a believing Christian, God is working in you. Even though it may be painful at times, he's working in you. He wants you to finish well. You've got all of the, the cheerleaders in heaven rooting for you. No one here on earth will root for you except for some members of the church, but even the church will be on your case sometimes. But there's a whole host in heaven that is cheering you on for each step of the way, each trial you go through. But do you want to finish well? If you do, then abide in Christ daily. It will not be without trials. It will not be without tests. But do the right thing and make no provision for the flesh. What did Paul tell the Galatians? He said to them, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. But see, here's the deal. When and if you blow it, confess it, receive the forgiveness of God, turn from it, and move toward Christ. Take hold of that promise that was given to us by God through the Apostle John when he said in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, and here is the wonderful promise. Commit this one to heart and memory. If we confess, John speaking, he's speaking of himself as well. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is there any other greater promise than that? There's a lot of really great promises, but this is one of the best ones. Because if we confess, then he will. You see it? If we confess, that it's conditional, isn't it? We have to confess it. And then he is faithful to forgive it. And then, don't go digging around again for that sin again. People do that. They, they confess something, and then 
God forgives them. They have to believe it by faith, of course. But if they don't believe it by faith and they're constantly feeling guilty about that sin, they're like, you know, they're looking around the corner for that sin and it's haunting them. The shadow is chasing them and they won't let it go. And they're like, and God is going, hey, didn't I forgive you about that uh, seven years ago? Why are you running around like that? Trust in me. Is what I did on the cross, on my son on the cross, was that not, here's a great word, efficacious? Wasn't that good enough? Or do you somehow have to make yourself right by the flesh? Well, if I just keep my standards and I, you know, tighten my belt and I put the brill cream on my hair, I'm going to be just fine. Hey, you can do all that you want, but you're going to fall again. Believe the promise of God. You honor him when you honor his promise. When you rest in his promise, you honor God. Do you understand? It's a wonderful promise. And when you take him for his promises, he delights in it. There's nothing greater than you can do than to claim the promise of God because God, you've got his stamp of approval. And he's like, yes, now go take it and live it. And when you blow it again, you confess it and come back and where our fellowship is restored through the blood of Christ. And then get back up, no matter what the devil tells you, no matter what the church tells you, no matter what your own flesh tells you, believe the promise of God. And that is a promise that people trip over all the time. And I feel like I've already gotten through my message. But we haven't even gotten into verse 1 yet, really. So let's get into it. But notice that Joash started well. He did not finish well. But yet there was one man who was in his path, and thank God for men like that. But let's look at it. Verse 1, it says, In the seventh year of Yehu, Jehoash became king, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Zebiah of Beersheba. And uh, this, this Joash, or Jehoash, he reigned from 835 B.C. to 796 B.C. He was the second longest reigning king in Judah up to this point in the divided kingdom. We know that Saul and David and Solomon, they all reigned 40 years each, but um, Jehoash was the second longest reigning king in Judah after the, after the kingdom had divided. Asa earlier was a, a, a king earlier in Judah. He reigned for 41 years, and then next it was Joash here. And so just an interesting longevity that the Lord gave him. And notice in verse 2, it says, Jehoash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days in which Jehoiada the priest instructed him. I would encourage you to underline or put a little asterisk next to that that verse 2 because you can already sense and see in the text here that there was a condition that caused him to stay on the straight and narrow. And it was the presence of Jehoiada the priest. Jehoiada was the governor. He was sort of like an uncle to him, in a sense, in this young boy's life. And Jehoiada was a grown, mature man when Joash came to uh, the, the kingdom at a ripe old age of seven. And Jehoiada did many things when this young boy couldn't even, was just so small, he, he didn't know anything yet, but During that time, Jehoiada, he did at least four things, and these are all things that are in the Scripture. Number one, he gathered the Levites and the bodyguards to protect the king in his house. He made sure that he remained out of sight and out of mind, just like Jehosheba stored him away in the house of God. And Jehoiada was there to protect him as well, because he was the last one left. He was the remainder, the last one standing, if you will, after Athaliah murdered everybody else. So here we have Jehoiada doing this, before he even understood what was happening. He was just a little boy. And he planned, Jehoiada, he planned and oversaw the overthrow of Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. He also, thirdly, made a covenant between himself, the people, and the king as a little boy that they should be the Lord's people. So he's trying to help restore Judah back to its right moorings, if you will. And then finally, he appointed the oversight of the house of the Lord to the hand of the priests, the Levites, whom David had assigned in the house of the Lord to offer burnt offerings to the Lord as it's written in the law of Moses. And all these things Jehoiada did to help restore the kingdom back to the line of David according to the word of the Lord. And we read that passage, according to the word of the Lord. What was that word of the Lord 
that it's spoken of here, it's, it's speaking of that passage that I had you memorize, right? 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, the Davidic covenant. David, your seed is going to be on the throne forever. That was the promise that God had made. And what is Athaliah doing? And see, that's why Jehoiada could act with all conviction now to do the right thing to restore their worship because they had gotten so off track in Baal worship. And Jehoiada's like, the word of God, the word of God, the word of God. And God's going, well, get after it. Restore it. Restore the worship. Restore the rightful heir to the throne. But notice, even though Jehoash started well, notice verse 3, but the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burnt incense on the high places. Now, Even though they may have been worshiping Jehovah, perhaps many of them, maybe not all of them, but they were to do it in the right place. There was only one place that they were to worship. And where was that? Jerusalem, right? In Deuteronomy chapter 12, it says this. These are the statutes and the judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord your God of your fathers has given you to possess all the days of the that you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the high hills, under every green tree, and you shall destroy their altars, break down their sacred pillars, burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods, destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God, (coughs) excuse me, with such things. But here it is. Verse 5, but you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place, and there you shall go. And we know that in time, God does that. In verse 11, it says, then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, all of that. Bring them to the house of God. And God hadn't established that yet, hadn't, had he? Because in Deuteronomy, they were still on the eastern side of, of the Jordan River. They hadn't crossed over into the promised land yet. The land hadn't even been divided. None, none of that was happening. God was saying, when the time is right and I establish my house, and he, was thinking, he had his eye and his heart on Jerusalem the whole time, that is where you're going to worship. There and there only. Not on the hill, anywhere else. It's to be one place. See, God was very clear how he ought to be worshipped and where he was to be worshipped. He didn't leave it up to man to make it up as he went along. Well, I just feel like worshipping the Lord this way. I feel like worshipping the Lord that way. No, God has made it very clear to the Jews how and where he ought to be worshipped and very specifically how they are to worship him. Why? Because he's a God of order. You can always tell when somebody's worshiping something other than the true and living God because there's nothing but chaos. Nothing but chaos. It's not up for us to make it up. And do you remember in the letters that Jesus wrote to the churches, the seven churches in Revelation? Chapters 2 and 3 were those seven letters to the seven churches that were physically in Asia Minor at the time, And remember, he always started off with a commendation and then a correction. Most of them, I think except for one, most of them were just, there was a commendation, you're doing this right, but I have this against you. You've left your first love. So there was always a commendation and then a correction. We're seeing the same thing in the book of Kings. He did these great things, but he didn't take away the high places. He was a great king and did, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, except he didn't do this. You're going to see that as we go through Kings as well. And so verse 4 back in our text says, So Joash said to the priests, All the money of the dedicated gifts that are brought into the house of the Lord, each man's census money, each man's assessment money, and all the money that a man purposes in his heart to bring into the house of the Lord, let the priests take it themselves from each his constituency, and let them repair the damages of the temple wherever, wherever any dilapidation is, is found. And, and so Moses told us back in Exodus chapter 30 um, that there was to be a census taken and uh, a half a shekel from every man 20 years old and up were to give a half a shekel to the sanctuary for the, for the service of the sanctuary. There were other 
personal vows where people might have offered money uh, to the temple. In Leviticus 27, 1 through 8, we also see in Leviticus 22 and Deuteronomy 16, these uh, voluntary offerings. But there was a problem, and we're going to see that very clearly now. Now it was so by the 23rd year of King Jehoash. So now we're looking at 813 B.C., King Jehoash, that the, the priest, he noticed that they hadn't repaired the damages of the temple. And so it took 23 years and nothing had happened. Can you imagine that? It kind of shows you the, the, the decay of the, mon, you know, of, the, of the kingdom when the king wanted something to be done and it just wasn't happening. You know, when the king asks for something and he wants it to get done, it needs to get done. And there was a reason, I I believe, these men weren't doing it. Whether right or wrong, it doesn't really matter, but we'll we'll see that. But, you know, it makes you wonder, but it was necessary for them to repair all the corruption that had taken place, all the Baal worship. And also, in 2 Chronicles 24, and I would encourage you, as you read this chapter again, read read 2 Chronicles chapter 24 along with this chapter, because Second Chronicles 24 will fill in a lot of the blanks. We're going to read some of it tonight, Lord willing, if I could keep moving here. <laughs> but also, Athaliah's sons, it tells us in Second Chronicles 24, verse 7, that her sons broke into the house of God, and they took some of those dedicated things out of the house of God to serve the Baals with, to serve these false gods with. So there was money probably being taken from the temple to serve these other gods. And so this is the first restoration of the temple mentioned in First or Second Kings. And, and we're going to see one of the greatest restorations of the temple later on when we look at the, the life of Josiah. Just a wonderful man, a great reformer king. But let's look at verse 7 now back in our text. It says, so King Jehoash, he called Jehoiada. So now he's a younger man, but still Jehoiada is much more his senior he calls them and the other priests, and he says to them, Why have you not repaired the damages to the temple? It's been 23 years. Now, therefore, do not take any more money from your constituency, but deliver it for the repairing of the damages of the temple. And the priests agreed that they would neither receive more money from the people nor repair the damages of the temple. We're just not going to do it. It's kind of interesting. They're evidently was not sufficient funds to support the Levites in their service and also for the repairing of the temple. Because most of those offerings and those uh, temple tax and all those things, those were given for that very purpose. They were given for that purpose to support the Levites. And so now if they take that money that is supposed to support them and their families... How are they going to pay for the repairs of the temple, which is a pretty exorbitant price? What are they going to live on? And so that is my, what I believe is happening here. And so, then Jehoiada the priest, verse 9, took a chest. He bored a hole in its lid, and he set it beside the altar. And we have a chest in this room. It's right over there on the wall, and we've bored a hole in it. And it's for the exact same purpose. That's why there's a box. In most churches, you have an agape box. Where'd they get that from? right here. <laughs> but they took it. He took, a bore, he took a chest, bored a hole in its lid, set it beside the altar on the right side as one comes into the house of the Lord. And the priest who kept the door put there all the money brought into the house of the Lord. And so it was, whenever they saw that there was much money in the chest, that the king's scribe and the high priest, they came up and they put it in bags and they counted the money, what was found in the house of the Lord. Then they gave the money, which had been apportioned, into the hands of those who did the work, who had the oversight of the house of the Lord, and they paid it out to the carpenters and the builders who worked on the house of the Lord, to the masons and the stonecutters and the buying of timber and hewing stone to repair the damage of the house of the Lord and for all that was paid out to repair the temple. And they had to do that. And so instead of taking away from their livelihood, the king was a very good thought. He decides to create another box. Tell the people, look, we need to repair the house of God. <clears throat> and so, me. So he does that, and they use that money to repair the house. And it's a lot. Day by day, people fill it, and then they empty it out, and they count it, and they save it, and they give it to them, the workers. However, verse 13 Sorry, my throat's really dry. <clears throat> they were not made uh, 
There were not made for the house of the Lord basins of silver, trimmers, sprinkle bowls, trumpets, any articles of gold or articles of silver from the money brought into the house of the Lord. But they gave that to the workmen, and they repaired the house of the Lord with it. Now, Second Chronicles, uh, turn with me, if you would, to Second Chronicles. Pardon me. Second Chronicles 24, <clears throat> verse 12, it kind of gives us a... Uh, <clears throat> Second Chronicles 24, verse 12, it says, The king, and, and this really just gives us more information about what was going on, and, and it's important to read Chronicles for that reason. Um, there's more commentary usually than what you find in Kings. And so when you read those chapters uh, together, it really fills in the blanks and you get a bigger understanding. So the king and Jehoiada gave it to those who did the work of the service of the house of the Lord. And they hired masons and carpenters to repair the house of the Lord, and also for those who worked in iron and bronze to restore the house of the Lord. And so the workmen labored, and the work was completed by them. And notice, and they restored the house of God to its original condition, and they reinforced it. Now notice verse 14, it says, When they had finished it, they brought the rest of the money. Excuse me again. They brought the rest of the money before the king and Jehoiada, they made it four articles for the house of the Lord, um, the articles for serving and offering, the spoons and the vessels of gold and silver. So they collected so much that they were able to fix the house, and then they had left over, so they were able to help out with those things that they didn't have before because um, they were given away to other kings. And they offered burnt offerings in the house of the Lord continually all the days of Jehoiada. Moreover, verse 15, let's go back to... Um, 2 Kings uh, verse 12 or chapter 12, beginning in verse 15, it says, Moreover, they did not require an account from the men whose into the hand that they delivered the money to be paid to the workmen, for they dealt faithfully. They were such good men and uh, had such integrity. There was no need for the accounting of the money. And the money from the trespass offerings and the money from the sin offerings was not brought into the house of the Lord. It belonged to the priests. And so that just explains again why it was necessary. They created this extra box and they used the money that was put in there for the temple repairs so it wouldn't get in the way of the livelihood of the priests who served. But notice, um, if you still have your, your finger there in Second Chronicles 24, we're going to look at the apostasy of, of Joash. And let's just start with verse 15 because this is something that's not recorded for us in Second Kings 12. But in 2 Chronicles 24, it is, beginning in verse 15. Notice what it says. But Jehoiada grew old and was full of days, and he died. And he was 130 years old when he died, so a very ripe old age. And they buried him in the city of David among the kings, because he had done good in Israel, both toward God and his house. And that was a great honor for this priest to be buried in the same place with the kings. It was a great honor for him to be buried there. And we'll find that Joash wasn't even buried there, but Jehoiada was. <clears throat> kind of interesting. Now, after the death of Jehoiada, the leaders of Judah came They came and they bowed down to the king, and the king listened to them. And therefore they left the house of the Lord God of their fathers, and noticed they served wooden images and idols. And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem because of their trespass. And notice, yet God sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord, and they uh, testified against them, but they wouldn't listen. See, whenever we don't listen, God will raise up someone else. When I'm not listening, God sometimes will raise up somebody else to come and speak to me. When I've, tu when I've turned my ears off and my heart off, <clears throat> God will send someone else to get my attention if I'm not listening. And he did that. But Jehoash, as soon as Jehoiada was dead, 
Remember, I, I labeled this with a title, Who Are You, Really? <laughs> because now we're really finding out who Joash really is. He wasn't the man that started off well. He was really this man. Because as long as Jehoiada, as long as this man, this influencer in his life was there, he looked up to him and he, he put him in, on the throne. He was instrumental in helping this young man and, and nurturing him, discipling him. But once he was dead, ah, now the mice will play. We find out what we really are. We find out who Joash really is. And it says in verse 20 of Second Chronicles 24, it says, Then the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest. So now Jehoiada has a son now. He's now the high priest after his dad dies. And he stood up above the people and said to them, Thus says God, why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. And so they conspired against him. And at the command of the king, at the command of Joash, he, has, he, had the, the, he had him stoned to death in the court of the house of the Lord. And, then, and thus Joash, the king, did not remember the kindness which Jehoiada, his father, had done to him, but killed his son. And as he died, he said, the Lord look on it and repay. You see just how awful that is? This man who brought him up and set him on the throne, got things in order for him. He passes from the scene. Joash starts to go south in his devotion to God. And then his son, who's now the high priest, says, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? And then Joash says, kill him. And he kills him. And as he's dying, he says, the Lord look on it and repay. Do you remember any other time in history, in the Bible, where somebody said, Lord, look on it and repay? What about Stephen? Remember as they were stoning him in Acts chapter 7? What did it say? That as he was, they were stoning Stephen, he was calling on God saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Similar kind of thing. And what about Jesus on the cross? Luke 23 tells us, Jesus cried out on the cross, Lord, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Very similar thing. So verse 17, back in our text. Hazael, king of Syria, and now the consequences are starting to mount up. After he departs from God, now the consequences are starting to flow. So Hazael, king of Syria, went up and fought against Gath. He took it, and then Hazael set his face to go up to Jerusalem and Joash, king of Judah, took all the sacred things. Notice this. He took all the sacred things that his fathers, Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Ahaziah, kings of Judah, had dedicated and his own sacred things, and all the gold found in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and in the king's house, sent them to Hazael, king of Syria, and then he went away from Jerusalem. And then verse 19. Now the rest of the acts of Joash, are they... And all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? Yes, they are. We just read it, didn't we? They're in the books of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah. That's what, that's what First and Second Chronicles is. We just saw that. More information than what we had here in Second Kings. And his servants, notice, Joash's servants, rose, formed a conspiracy, killed Joash in the house of Milo, which goes to, down to Silla. This is Right there, we believe, somewhere in um, Zion, just south of the Temple Mount, somewhere between the Temple Mount and Zion, there's a, like a landfill there. There must have been a building there, which may have been called the Milo, and, and then uh, as it goes down into the Kidron Valley, and it tells us the names of the two men who rose up against Joash and killed him because of his treachery against Zechariah, Jehoiada's son. And their names are Josachar, the son of Shimeath, and Jehozabad, the son of Shomer. His servants struck him. So he died, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David. And then Amaziah, his son, reigned in his place. Now, continue looking at um, Second Chronicles, because something is interesting there for us. Because 
When we look at um, verses 17 through 21, it's kind of written there for us in a very short form. <clears throat> but look with me at verse 23 of Second Chronicles 24. It gives us a little bit more info on that, and then we'll take communion, okay? Notice what it says concerning the death of Joash, and you'll see the, the difference here, a little bit more info. So it happened in the spring of the year that the army of Syria came up against him, and they came to Judah and Jerusalem, and they destroyed all the leaders of the people from among the people and sent all their spoil to the king of Damascus. Who's the king of Damascus? It's the king of Syria, because Damascus is this, the capital of Syria. For the army of the Syrians came with a small company of men, but notice, but the Lord delivered a very great army, speaking of Israel, into their hand with a smaller army. Why? Because they had forsaken the Lord God of their fathers. <clears throat> and so they executed judgment against Joash. And when they had withdrawn from him, for they left him severely wounded, his own servants conspired against him because of the blood of the sons of Jehoiada the priest and killed him on his bed. And so he died. And they buried him. Notice, Remember Jehoiada, the faithful high priest? He was buried in the place, the tombs of the kings. But notice, an actual son of David. They buried him in the city of David, but they did not bury him in the tombs of the kings because he was such a rascal. He wasn't worthy to be placed in the same tomb. But yet the man who put him on the throne was the high priest. He was buried with the kings, but not Jehoash or Joash himself. So Joash started out well, but he didn't end well, did he? <clears throat> and perhaps you started off well. When you gave your heart to Christ, and it's a good thing to ask, take inventory, how am I doing now? How am I doing, Lord? You know, when you first came into my heart, there was such an excitement. I felt like I, it was like a new relationship. You had had the exhilaration of feeling forgiven and knowing that you're going to heaven. And it was all because of Christ. And now, as time goes on and as, like water on sandstone, the, the world has a way of just boring a hole in your heart. And it, it washes away or attempts to wash away. The enemy of our souls, the world, is attempting to wash away what Christ has put there. How are we doing are you still abiding? Are we still abiding? Are we still doing well? Or have we slipped back into sinful patterns and habits of our old, old self before we came to Christ? Well, today is the day to turn over a new leaf, right? Never think that God is finished with you. When you take your last breath and you die, then you're finished. Then your choice has been made. And if your choice is for Christ, then you're going to dwell in eternity in heaven with him. And if your choice was anything, anything but Christ, then your eternity will be spent in hell for eternity. Yes, the lake of fire. Revelation 20 tells us about it. Jesus talked more about hell than anybody else, but that is the choice that we make. So today is the day to turn over a new leaf because he wants you to live. He wants you to be blessed. And even, Christian, even if you're blowing it or have blown it, or maybe, the, maybe even today you've said or done something that you're ashamed of, there's no better time than the present before we take communion to just say, Lord, I, I have messed up, and will you please forgive me? And remember the promise that we read earlier? If we confess, he is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a wonderful promise. And now is the time, folks, that we have to believe in the word of God. No one else in this world believes in the word of God like you and I do. And we need to rest everything on it. We need to take it all to the bank. We need to rest and, and, and set it and set it like a rock and stand upon it, and, and, and defend it, and to stand by it, and do not budge from it. Don't give it away. And you know what I mean by give it away. Certainly give it away, tell people about it, but don't offer anybody to take it away from you. It is here, it's solid, it's firm, it's no one should take this. They can't ultimately take it away, but we can give our peace away if we're not careful. Don't give up what God has stored up in your heart. Turn over a new leaf today. Turn from the sin. Confess it. Enjoy the promise that God has given to us. Amen?
If we could have Sarah come on up, and um, I can't think of a better time to take communion. Because who are you really? Who am I really? It's a good thing I have to ask myself. And the best time to really challenge myself is when nobody's around. I've got no governors, I've got no accountability. That's the time to ask the question, who am I really? And say, Lord, I want to be a man after your own heart, whether I'm here on an island by myself, whether I'm on a business trip and my wife's not around, nobody's around, what am I going to be? Who am I really? That's a great thing to ask. And if you've blown it today, or you've blown it this week, now's a great time to just set the record straight. And remember what Christ has done for us. He was wounded for our transgressions. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And more importantly than the physical stripes, the one wound that God gave him by placing the sin of us all on his son on the cross at Calvary and judged him when he literally, his soul became an atonement All of the sin of mankind placed upon him. That's what he did. That's why we celebrate communion. We celebrate the death of Christ. Not because he died, but because of what he did on the cross. That's what we celebrate. The victory that he has given us. Amen? You know, I love that part of that song where it says, No... There's no other fount that I know than the blood of Jesus. Remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing very well what was before him and what he had to accomplish. In fact, it had been prophesied hundreds and even a few thousand years prior, all the way back into Genesis. He knew what was before him. But yet it wasn't something that he delighted in thinking about, other than the fact that he delighted in knowing what, the, what, what his death on the cross would accomplish. That is what the joy that was set before him was, knowing that he would get a bride, he would secure a bride and present her faultless and white and linen to his father. And when the rapture occurs, folks, do you realize we're going to be transformed? We're going to be given those robes of righteousness and we will be presented the marriage supper of the Lamb. Isn't that amazing to think about? And he did all that knowing that was the goal, to present us, you and I, and all people around the world. doesn't matter what color of their skin or their, any demographic that might, man would try to separate us. In God's economy, there's only one. He sees a church made up of Jew and Gentile, all different walks of life. And he did that willingly. And there's nothing but the blood of Jesus that can do that. There's no other way, folks. We all know that, right? There, There was no other way. There is no other way. There's no other way that we can be reconciled to God the Father, but the blood of God had to be spent on our behalf in order for God to be appeased. It pleased him to bruise his son, to crush him. He was satisfied with that sacrifice once. It happened once. And when we take the bread and the cup, we commemorate that. We believe in that. We come into agreement with it, that it was the, his body broken for us. Remember that night, he broke bread. This is my body broken for you. When it hadn't even happened yet, but in his heart, it was already a done deal. And so let's take the bread and thanksgiving for what Jesus did for us. Then he took that cup. He took that chalice, that holy grail. He passed it around. And they all took a sip from the same thing. Hallelujah. This is the blood of the new covenant. Take it. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Let's stand together and let's give him thanks. Lord, we thank you for all that you have done for us. Lord, uh, truth be known, Lord, there is so much 
that we can't even fathom. I, I, I can't imagine, Lord. I, my, my heart, my mind, and all of us collectively is, is not enough to contain the reality of who you are, God. And I pray that you would just stir our hearts with that thought, Lord. Just There's not a loftier thought that we can think that can even match the reality of who you really are. We, we can't even attain it, Lord. We're, we're like David. We understand when David said, your, your thoughts are too high. I can't attain to it. I can't, even, I can't think that high and lofty enough. I can't think that pure. I, can't, I don't understand. And, and I know so little, and, and yet it's enough, Lord. It's enough for now to bring us into worship, to bring us into fellowship because of what you've done. But Lord, we're thankful for the hope that we have that when you receive us and then we will have an innumerable eternity to spend with you as you unravel the riches of the grace that you have set before us. You will unravel the mysteries that we've long scratched our heads and wondered. And Lord, a million years from that time, our jaws will still be dropping in awe and wonder because we will never, ever figure you out completely. We will always be in a wonderment, Lord, and I'm so thankful for that because you are perfect. And we love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for saving our souls. Thank you for encouraging us, Lord. Continue to help us tomorrow as we go. Protect us. Protect all of our health, Lord. Continue to restore and renew us and build us up. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.